Brent. Well, you're back. It's encouraging. Uh, it's amazing we got more to talk about. We do, but I, I brought a couple of things with me tonight. One, and, and I'll, I would encourage you to get a look at these two books I'm going to show you. One, this is the Bible um, that we printed and got shipped over to Zambia. Um, these Bibles were printed in China. The Bible, the Word of God, printed in China. Now, China wouldn't let us distribute them in China, but they'll let us print them in China and export them. But when you get a look at this Bible, this is a leatherette Bible. It's not leather. It's a leatherette Bible. Very good quality. It's stitched. It's a very good paper. It's very readable. And I thank God for our Bible ministries in America that are printing Bibles and sending them around the world. We ended up printing this in China, as I mentioned, because during COVID, um, there was such a backlog, supply chain issues. We, we couldn't get it. And you won't find a better Bible printed than this. Um, a lot of the Bibles that we print, um, they don't last long in third world countries and climates. And this Bible, 20 years from now, is still going to be together in, in one piece through you. So it's a real blessing. So, again, when we talk about ministry, um, we need these. Like, we, we need these Bibles. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, we need Bibles. And, you know, we, it, we printed a container, 19,000 of these. And then a couple Bible printing ministries did New Testaments for us with um, uh, special editions for the military and the police in Zambia. So, we gave a Bible and the New Testament um, to them when we went. Um, but this is partnership. Like This is partnership in ministry. So I want you to see that. And then a second book that I want you to see, this is called Pearls in Paradise. And this is written by Julie Von Vett and Bruce Malone. Both of these, um, Julie Von Vett is a high school teacher in Minnesota. Um, she has about 500 homeschool students throughout Minnesota, and she tutors them throughout various homeschools. So she's a homeschool aide. Um, Bruce Malone was a chemical engineer with the Dow Chemical Corporation. Um, 17 patents that were secured for Dow through his work while he was there. Um, both of them have given, given themselves to the creation science world. To um, and, and so Anyway, long story short, this is a 365-day Evidence for Creation uh, book. Most kids in Fiji have never owned a decent book in their life, and we decided to do a, uh, a book. So this is microbiology, cosmology, geology, botany, design. Every, every page in here corresponds to a day of the year, and it, it tells something really amazing that God made that evolution can't uh, describe. For example, you'll read in here about the marine iguana. Have any of you kids ever seen an iguana? Right. Let me tell you about the marine iguana. The marine iguana goes, gets its food from the ocean, from the water. It jumps, jumps into water and it fishes. The problem is it has a very loud heartbeat, and sharks can hear the heartbeat over 12 feet away. So whenever he's fishing, that heartbeat goes, and the sharks go, oh, food, and they go eat the iguana. So if you were an iguana, 
and your heartbeat attracted sharks, but you needed to go in the water to eat, what would you do to protect yourself from the shark? Did you say shut your heart off? Yeah, shut your heart off? Mm -hmm. But that's exactly what the marine iguana does. He shuts his heart off for up to 40 minutes and then goes and swims around with no blood flow, hunts, fishes, comes back, starts its heart up again when it's on dry land and continues to go. Now, evolution teaches that there are random mutations that accidentally provide a positive benefit to a species. So, and they, the, these, these mutations are supposed to happen one little thing at a time, and it's blind, by the way. Um, so again, let's say you woke up one day and you're the marine iguana, and your heart's beating out there, and you go, I just realized that I evolved the ability to turn my heart off. So you shut your heart off, and never mind the thousands of other changes that would have to be made to the physiology of that iguana for it to survive with no blood flow for 40 minutes. You know, he gets out of the water and goes, I haven't evolved the ability to turn the heart back on yet. You know, this, this book is filled with amazing design, evidence for design. We have given a copy of this book to over 178,000 high school students in Fiji. And many of these schools are using this as part of their daily required reading. Students have to read in the morning, program called Dear, Drop Everything and Read. They're trying to build literacy. I have a principal of a high school. I, I just visited him when I was there. It's been so long, we're doing another round with his new high school students. And he said, the, when you guys gave this book, the first thing, he stood up in front of his school um, last week and he held up a Bible, and he said, this is the most true science that we have. And essentially, as principal of the school, he said, we reject evolution. We did not come from monkeys. We came from God. And part of that finality in their heart came because of the ministry of our creation science team and the book that we gave. So he actually told us, he said, the year after you came, he said, we couldn't get our kids back into the regular textbook. They were reading your books all the time. And he said, you know what happened? He said they were so interested in the stories they started reading. And their English test scores went from an average of 60% to almost 90% that very year. And their science scores, ever since we put this book, he said, all of a sudden, kids are like, science is cool and real, and they can reconcile science and God. Morality of the students, science and English test scores have gone up, and he's testified to that. So again, we need educators to do this. So here I am as a missionary preaching the gospel, and because of a school teacher named Julie Von Vett, and because of a chemical engineer named Bruce Malone that decided that their talents were usable for missions, they joined the team of what we're doing and we are now in Fiji, Vanuatu, and Papua New Guinea with this project. We just had the Ministry of Education in Fiji give us a five-year um, credentials, uh, essentially, that we can continue to go into every high school in Fiji. Hindu, Muslim, Catholic, public, private schools have us in for this. So I, what I wanted to share with you is 
I can't do any of this, right? I'm not a printer. I don't have money to print Bibles. I'm not a scientist. I'm not an educator. I don't have the qualifications to write this type of things. But now as a missionary, I've got tools in my hands that were provided by the team. You understand what I'm saying? Like you have a role to play in this. And you might think, but I don't, I don't know what role I could play with whatever skill that I have. Well, maybe you've never thought to ask God that question. Maybe you thought missions is for somebody else. The only thing I can do is pray and give. And those aren't bad things to do, by the way. But there is a possibility that there is actually something else in your hand. What did God say to Moses? What is this in thine hand? What can God do with the rod? Oh, he can part a Red Sea with it. So um, I, would, I would really want to encourage you to continue praying, Lord, the talents, the skills, the gifts that you've given to me, how can I use them for the furtherance of the gospel around the world? And if you make yourself available, that will lead us right into tonight's um, message. I want you to go again to Acts 1.8. We're going to talk tonight about the Holy Spirit in missions, the Holy Ghost and missions. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. Acts chapter number 1, verse number 8. He said, but ye shall receive power. Oh, uh, by the way, um, Pastor Shannon Scott, who is here tonight, has been a great friend and partner in the area of missions. And Andrew, who is his son there, has now been on three missions trips with us now. Is that right? Um, Andrew went to Sierra Leone and then jumped over into Zambia, and then did a second mission trip into Zambia, has done a third trip into Fiji with us, and also attended um, the, did you go to Beyond Borders? Uh, the Beyond Borders Mission Camp, which is training for third world and remote missions. So as I, I mentioned to you, uh, the pattern in the Bible is that the teams were not just people from your own church. It was people from multiple churches working together um, for the mission. And that's what that's what this is, and that's what this is. It's people from various churches collaborating together. So I just wanted to make mention, and glad to have Pastor Scott and Andrew. Um, did you get any sleep? Yes. Uh, we didn't. I'm just kidding. We did too. Acts 1.8. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Father, thank you for this evening. Uh, just exciting to be back again with this uh, church family as they seek your face, meditate on the commission, and just ask you, Father, what it is that you would have them to do. And I pray, Lord, that uh, our visit here has just been an encouragement to them along that journey. And as we talk about the Holy Spirit tonight, uh, you are the guide to all that we do. And so, Lord, may our ears be tuned to the Holy Spirit as we learn about his role in missions and our partnership with him. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Shall. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, 
and ye shall be witnesses. Now, this is going to shock you. But there is, if you're saved, we are post-Pentecost, which means the Holy Ghost is upon you. You already have power. We don't, we don't, we don't necessarily need to ask for power to be given to us because he said, once the Holy Ghost is come upon you, ye shall receive power. I think Christians are ignorant of how much power is actually in them because the Spirit of God is in them. Um, we're always saying, God, give me power. God, give me power. God, give me power. God, give me power. And God's like, use it. Lord, give me power and I will go. And God's like, is the Holy Ghost upon you? Then go. The power is already there. Um, but ye shall receive power and ye shall be witnesses. And he did not say ye shall do witnessing. See, we think about witnessing or soul winning as an activity that we do. Okay, we're going to meet Saturday at 10 o'clock and we're going to go soul winning. Or we're going to meet Thursday night at this time and we're going to go soul winning. We're going to go out on the streets and we're going to do witnessing. Nothing wrong with any of those activities, but that is not what this means. Um, witnessing and soul winning isn't something that you can section off and do a little bit here and a little bit there. This is what you are now. I am a witness. God is witnessing himself to the world through me. Not through angels, not through weather patterns, not through politics, through believers. You are the witness of God to this world. You aren't a good, you, you're not a good witness in and of yourself. It's the Holy Ghost upon you, the Holy Ghost through you, that is the witness. And that is what you have right now. Missions is not accomplished without the Holy Spirit. He is the power, he is the witness, and he is the guide. Now go to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8. We've spent a good amount of time in this portion of Scripture, and I told you I'd revisit it. The church has now gone into all the region of Judea, Samaria, Galilee. They're all the way up into uh, Syria, Damascus, and Antioch. And then the, the, the Holy Spirit is going to cause us to follow Philip for a little while, um, the evangelist here. And he's going to hone in on to, I believe, very importantly, why the leadership of the Holy Spirit is so necessary. So he's down in Samaria in Acts chapter number 8. And Samaria was phenomenal. All right, there's all kinds of people that are getting saved. All kinds of people are coming to the Lord. Uh, the doors open in the city of Samaria. The doors open in many villages of the Samaritan. And, and we might call this like an awakening. We, we like to use the word revival. Revival is kind of more to God's people waking up, not lost people waking up. But there's an awakening taking place in Samaria. And like, it's exciting what's happening here. And it would not make much sense at that point for Philip to leave. You know, when things are hopping, when things are hopping and happening, 
My, my children will tell you I speak in tongues quite often up here. I conflate words together. I make new definitions, all kinds of things. When things are hopping and happening, it doesn't make sense to leave. But go down with me in Acts 8 to verse number 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, now the angel of the Lord. The word angel is, is a messenger. That's what the word angel means. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit, because in verse 29, it says, then the Spirit said unto Philip. So the angel said, the Spirit said, I think they're one in the same. But the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, now notice this, arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went. So, so notice the spirit of God here, God, the angel of the Lord, the leading of God, does not give him much information about where he's going to end and why he is going there. But I want you to notice how specific the Spirit of God was in where he led. He told him to arise and go. Where? South, down from Jerusalem to the desert. I just want you to get up and leave right now and go down to the desert that's south of Jerusalem, that place that is called Gaza. Do you understand that you don't need all the information? Like, like what is God doing? What, what is God orchestrating in the whole world? Do you understand that God cares about all 8 billion people on the world? And so God's heart is to get the gospel to all 8 billion people. And, and, and there's billions and billions of moving pieces and components in order for all this to work. And your brain and my brain can't possibly handle all the information necessary for this great commission to be done. If you're part of an army, you're part of a military, a Navy, an Air Force, whatever it is. Let's say you're a Marine or you're in, you're in the army and, and you've got the... You've got the top brass on top that are in charge of the overall strategy. And that overall strategy is delegated down to the next level of leadership. And then that's delegated down, down, down. And finally, you get down to that, that squad. And when you are a squad leader, how much information do you think the squad leader has of the overall global battle plan of the, of the military? None. If the squad leader is told by his, uh, whoever's above him, take your team and take that hill. How well do you think it would be if he said, why? Uh, because from m m my perspective, I think we should go for that hill. How well do you think an, a military would function if all the lower levels of leadership got to just forever scrutinize the instruction that was given from them from above. Like, how well would that work? Even if, even if they're sending you up there to die, you don't even ask questions. You just, you just go where you're sent. Because everybody can't have all the information and everybody can't give their opinion to everything or nothing would ever get done. So, so likewise with God, um, God knows the overall plan. God disseminates parts of that information, and sometimes maybe the higher you are in leadership, God gives you a little bit more 
of that puzzle. But sometimes the only thing you get from God is arise and go south now. And he doesn't have to tell you anything else. God does not need to be on trial. We spend way too much time assessing what God is doing and wondering what it means and how it is going to unfold. Listen, can I just tell you, when God speaks, God, God, what are you doing? Shall the thing formed say to the thing that formed it, why hast thou made me thus? How much information does God have to give you before you'll trust that God knows what he's doing? Right? You say, God doesn't speak to me. There's a, there's a reason God doesn't speak to you. Right? Because um, God doesn't waste time speaking to people who put him on trial. Because this is what a lot of people do. You ever heard of that term, white knuckling it? Man, the Holy Ghost is, I, mean, God, I think God might have been calling me, but you know, I'm just wrestling with God. What? You're doing what? You're, you're wrestling with God? Think, think that one out for a while. How do you think that's going to work out? Wrestling with God? You know, God's just working in my life, but uh, I mean, I've just, I've got all these plans and I've got these things and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm scared to follow God. I don't know. You're, you're what? The, the one who saved you from an eternal hell and holds all the universe in the palm of his hand, you're worried about what? Like, I mean, we, we are so out of tune with God. And so one thing, I, one thing I know about God is that God tends to speak in a still, small voice. Most of the time, God is not going, let's stand up. Most of the time, God's going, over here, guys. In fact, you know, Elijah was in that cave, right? And the earthquake and the fire and all of that. And how did God speak? In a still, small voice. Um, Why do preachers scream and yell when we preach? Because most people don't listen. Right? And and, and people are kind of like, so we're trying to keep their attention. But God doesn't do that. You read Proverbs, and God says, you want my wisdom? You have to incline your ear. You know, when, when do you incline your ear? What, what makes you, like, lean forward into what someone is saying? Why do we do that? One, they're being quiet, and we want to get what they're saying. So we're going, shh, 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 hey, guys, be quiet. I can't hear. God says, that's how you listen to me. But most of us, we're not, we're not leaning into God that direction. We, we don't care so deeply about God, what God is saying. We're very careless. And like God has to hit, man, when God speaks to me, he's going to have to hit me with a brick upside the head. But that's the way most people live. We hear our own voice. You know, the voice you hear most of the time is your own voice. I don't really want to do that. And if I had to do that, what would that mean? I'm going to do this, but I've always wanted to be that. I always want to do that. And this is what I, I, like, you're you're just screaming in your own voice all the time. You can hear your own voice. You're talking to this person and talking to this person, not hearing from the Lord. So anyway, but what, what I want to tell you is if you learned how to listen to God, like if you cared so deeply, what's ordered by the Lord? The steps. You mean God's not just interested in the overall journey? You mean God's actually interested in the steps? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. What that means is, if God is the one ordering your steps, as you go along the way, you will delight 
in the way of the Lord. Because you're going to look back and go, Lord, that makes a lot of sense looking back on it now. But God's not going to debate with you. God's not going to argue with you. God's not going to, a lot of this arguing, a lot of this uh, white knuckling stuff, like you need to get rid of that. Like if you're going to reach the world, if you're going to be a church that God will use to at his disposal for whatever he wants, like you're going to have to let go of everything. And the one voice you're going to have to crave to hear is the voice of God. And it's a quiet, still small voice. But I want you to notice how clear it was. South to Jerusalem to Gaza. And he arose and went. I love that. Lord, why? Lord, when? Lord, how? This seems irrational. <laughs> yes, there's nothing rational about the Christian life. Like the Christian life is not rational. Arise and go, so he arose and went. Way to the south, that goeth from Jerusalem to Gaza, which is desert. He rose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch, of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Okay, slow and chew. Slow down, chew this for a while. The guy in the chariot here that's driving all the way back to Ethiopia has just returned from Jerusalem. He is an Ethiopian. He is a eunuch. He works directly for Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, and he is in charge of all her treasures. You understand him being given permission by the queen to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem was as significant as Nehemiah being given permission to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. These kings don't let their top people just go. Okay, this Ethiopian eunuch wasn't, he was a Jewish convert, he was a proselyte. He wasn't going three times a year to Jerusalem. I guarantee you that. This would have been a very special occasion where he would have been granted permission to leave the kingdom and travel all the way up to Jerusalem. Now, he's coming back in the chariot, and what's he doing in the chariot? What is he reading? He's reading Isaiah. Now, in, in a minute, when we read a little bit further, when Philip gets up to the chariot, He's going to hear him reading Isaiah. And what chapter of Isaiah is he reading? He's reading Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 is the most beautiful Old Testament prophecy and picture of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where he's wounded for our transgression and bruised for our iniquities. That's a beautiful picture of Christ. And so this eunuch has been reading Isaiah 53 about a lamb. And whoever this lamb is, he's the one that takes away our iniquities, that takes away our sin. And when, when Philip gets up into the chariot and reads with him, what is the question that the eunuch is going to ask him? Who is this lamb? Is the writer speaking about himself? Was Isaiah the lamb? Or is someone else the lamb? And then what does the Bible say Philip does? He opened his mouth at the same scripture and preached unto him, Jesus. This lamb is Jesus. Okay, so could we say now that it would be very rare in the Old Testament era, for somebody to own their own personal copy of 
a scroll, like an Isaiah scroll. So we know that he was a wealthy man. We know that he was a Jewish convert. And we know that he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem with a copy of the Isaiah scroll with him. So what do you think he wanted to do when he got up to Jerusalem? I wonder how long that question had been in his heart. Who is this lamb? I wonder if, if in the synagogues there in Ethiopia, I wonder if he talked to any of the leaders in the synagogues. Who is that lamb? You know, if you go to Israel today, they don't like Isaiah chapter number 53. Like in their synagogues in Israel, when they read through the Old Testament, they skip Isaiah 53. Many of them don't even know that Isaiah 53 is in the Old Testament Bible. So I'm just gathering that this man went all the way up on this pilgrimage and said, I'm going right to the seat of my religion. I'm going to go right to the high priest. I'm going to go right to the leaders, and I'm going to ask them Who is this lamb? Now, the timing of this is just so cool because Jesus Christ was introduced on the banks of the River Jordan by John the Baptist saying, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And after three and a half years of witness throughout Jerusalem, what did the elders, the high priest, what did they say to do to this man who claimed to be the Lamb of God? crucify him. So they crucified him. They buried him. But then he rose up from the dead again. Rose from the dead. The Holy Ghost came upon that little church in Jerusalem. And then the doctrine of Christ filled the city of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is now filled with this doctrine. But now there's a great persecution against the church. And what has happened to the church at Jerusalem in Acts chapter number eight? They've all been scattered. So there's no church left in Jerusalem, just the apostles left in Jerusalem. Everybody else left in Jerusalem is denying that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. So the old Ethiopian eunuch shows up in Jerusalem, but there's no church there. So can you imagine the church is scattered? The high priest and everybody is thankful. Paul's like, no, this is not good. They're scattering everywhere else. Let's go and stop this. And this eunuch shows up to worship And he goes to the high priest, he goes to the Pharisees, goes to the Sanhedrin and said, who is the lamb? Can you imagine? We have no idea. We have no idea who the lamb is. There's got to be a lamb. There's got to be a lamb slain. There's got to be a lamb wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquity. Who is this lamb? We We have absolutely no idea who the lamb is at all. So this eunuch leaves Jerusalem and heads back home with no answer to the question, who is this lamb? So he's now in that chariot, maybe somewhat depressed. Because when Philip gets into the, he says, do you understand what you're reading? Understand us what thou readest? And what is his answer? How can I accept some man Help me. And so far, no man has been able to help him. And he desired Philip. Do you know? And Philip's like, yeah. He's like, jump up in my chariot. Talk to me. Who is that lamb? And he preaches Jesus. And I mean, there is a glorious meeting that takes place in that chariot. Because by the time they get done, he's like, where's water? I'm getting in the water now. Baptizes him. And then that work is done. Philip disappears. Shows up at Azotus. And I'll tell you what, that Ethiopian eunuch went back with an answer to who is the lamb, and it spread all over Africa because of that that meeting. Now, 
God knows what's been happening in that Ethiopian's heart. God goes right back. He knows that Ethiopian from his birth. He knows when he converted to Judaism. He knows the questions that are in his heart. He knows the authentic nature of his question when he pilgrimed all the way to Jerusalem. He knows the disappointment that it's in his heart. And God knows, I'm going to give this man the answer. Because you know when people say, who is the Lamb of God? Uh, God wants to give the answer to that. Like when people look up into heaven and say, is there a God? God's like, I got people for you. But God has chosen to save people through preaching. How then shall they call in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? This is God's chosen method. That question does not get answered without a preacher. And you say, what about reading the Bible? Well, that is a preacher. Because how did we get the Bible? I know people that have been saved reading the Bible. But how did, how did they get a Bible? Some man had to take time to get that Bible printed so that the message of Christ was on paper so someone could pick it up and read it. That Bible didn't fall down from heaven. A man was involved with that. Tracks, Bibles, radios, whatever it might be, God has chosen man to deliver the message. So here's that. Okay, so now Philip doesn't know anything. Philip has no idea that if he meets that man on that day, not only is that man getting saved, but the gospel's going down into Ethiopia. He has no idea. And God's eternal. God can handle all the information at one time. We can't. We can't process everything. So here's Philip in the middle of a great awakening in Samaria. This is great. The Jews hate the Samaritans. They've always gone around it, but look what God is doing in this place. And then right in the middle of all of that, the Spirit of God says, arise, go down south of Jerusalem to a desert that is called Gaza. That's all he gets. How important was the timing? How important was the timing? Because when he, he just arises and he goes... Where are you going? I'm going to Gaza. Why? Oh, the people that want to know why you're doing what you're doing? Trust me. The amount of people that wanted to sit down with me and say, Corey, what in the world are you doing? Have you lost your ever-living marbles? Like, you know what? I don't have time to have this conversation with you because God has spoken, and I've got to listen to him. I've got to go. You have to move. When God speaks, you have to go. So he, where are you going? Desert. Why are you going? The Lord said, there's nobody down in the desert. There's no villages there. There's no cities there. There's just the road. That's where God said to go. I'm going right down to the desert. You have no choice. This is how God works. You just, you just got to go. Okay, so he gets down there, and as he gets to the place, there is a royal um, delegation. Right? I, um, what do you call that when you get all those? A what? Entourage, yes. A royal entourage. You know, the, that Ethiopian eunuch with all that authority under Candace, the treasure for the queen, he doesn't travel alone. He's got, he got a motorcade. A modern day would call that a motorcade. So here's the royal chariot in the middle. He's in there. There's all the horsemen and all the guards. And as, as he's going down there and he sees that down there, the Holy Ghost says, join yourself to that chariot. Now, have you ever been intimidated when the Holy Ghost told you, that person, go witness to them? No, they're big, scary people. They're probably going to reject all the way over there. How, you, how much arguing we do when God puts something on our heart, a person to witness to or speak to? Go join yourself to that 
chariot. Now, if, if you are not a spirit-led person, you'd go, Lord, I can't just go up to that chariot. That's a royal carriage over there. I mean, they got guards around that. I mean, who am I? I can't just go. And, but he doesn't. Because the Bible, notice what the Bible said here that he had to do. Um, 29, then the spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither. So apparently, walking wasn't fast enough. So was the chariot group still moving along? Like if you, maybe if you took too much time, they would be too far past you for you to catch up. Because if it's a horse-drawn carriage and if they're going, and if the timing was right that Philip's coming down here while the chariot group is moving there, and the only speed that he can go to catch them is by running, because if he doesn't run, they'll be too far in front and he can't catch up to them. Is timing important? Has God made everything beautiful in what? In his time? How precise is God's time? God's time is very precise. So he runs. He joins himself to the chariot. Now, I don't know what's going on in Philip's mind. I don't, I don't know. I know what would be going on in my mind. This all seems crazy, God. Like as he's moving from Samaria, because if you look at Samaria, you have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You have to pass Jerusalem and go all the way down to Gaza. That, that's miles. So he's had a lot of time hoofing it. He's had a lot of time to think. I don't know what I'm doing, but this is the last direction I got from God was to go to the south. So, you know, when you're, when you're alone with your thoughts, you get a lot of time to think, what am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? What am I doing? This doesn't make any sense. But he kept going. It doesn't have to make any sense. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. And then he sees a chariot and says, run. And then he's probably thinking, I'm going to get killed. You know, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. Who, who knows what's going to happen? But this, this is the moment at which you go, Ooh. He gets to that chariot. He runs. He gets outside. And the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah out loud. Because it says here, and verse 30, And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. So the guy's reading out loud. Now, how cool do you think it would be if you've been hoofing it from Samaria? I don't know how many hours you've been on foot, just obeying the Lord where he told you to go. And then he says, go to that chariot. And so you're, now you're running to get down to that chariot. And you get there, and the guy's reading Isaiah. He was wounded for our iniquities. In his humiliation, he is taken away. Who shall declare his day? And then the great one-liner was not, if you died today, do you know for sure that you go to heaven? There's a lot more ways to talk to people than that. So he gets up there, and, and he just says, you understand what you're reading? I mean, that's a great passage you're reading right now. It's a great passage. My dad was an atheist. Didn't believe in God. And after many years of praying for my dad, I, he, he'd sent me a lot of books on evolution. He said, I'm not going to talk to you about Christianity until you read my books. So I read his books. And, and then one day, after several years, I told my dad, I said, hey, dad, I read your books. You haven't read mine. I said, why don't you just read the Bible? And my dad, being a very fair, logical man, he said, hey, that's, that's fair enough. I'll go buy a Bible and I'll read it. And when, of all the reading that my dad did, he only ever called me one time to ask me a Bible question. 
I was in Fiji. He picked up the phone. He'd got to Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel. And he said, son, he said, what's God's beef with beef? And I said, what? He said, Cain and Abel. He said, like, I don't understand why God would accept the offering of an animal, but he wouldn't accept the offering of the, of the fruit. It seems like both of, both of them gave their best. Why would God accept one and reject the other? And I thought, of all the best Old Testament questions to ask me, he asked me the gospel. Do you understand the blood sacrifice? Versus human good works is the two forms of religion. Uh, without the shedding of blood is no remission of sins. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, not good works. I'm like, God, he asked me the best question in the whole Old Testament right now. And I got to preach to my dad the gospel that day in answer to his question. A couple, a couple of years later, my dad got saved from an atheist to a believer. You, you see, God's doing work in people's hearts that you and I don't know. And we have to be sensitive to God. So he gets there. Um, he says, come up in the chariot and help me. He opens his mouth at the same scripture, and he preaches to him Jesus. So the salvation of that man was because Philip was a witness at the right place at the right time. I'm going to submit to you that if you go read the book of Acts, you will find that almost every salvation in the book of Acts was not random. You will find that it was God's people being in the right place at the right time, delivering the message to exactly who God wanted them to deliver the message to. In fact, where the mission now, let's bring this into missions. Where do you go when you're a missionary? So go to Acts chapter number 16. Acts chapter number 16, Paul and the team are on the second missionary journey. And Paul has got a very good strategy with missions. Um, if, if you go study the, that part of the world, Paul always went into chief cities, if you will, where there were great populations, and he went along trade routes. Right? So whenever a, a church was planted, it was in a great population base, and there were always people migrating in and out of that city so they could get saved and carry the gospel to wherever they were going. It was a great strategy. So on the second missionary journey, um, at the end of chapter 15, he says, let's go again and visit our brethren in all the cities where we've been. Right, So they go back to the areas except Cyprus. Barnabas goes there. Paul and Silas now go up into Lystra and Derbe and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. They go visit all those places, and then they continue west. And when they, when they continue west, you're here in Acts chapter number 16. Look at verse number 6. Now, when they had gone throughout Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. You know, sometimes we get the idea that as long as we're preaching to somebody, God's happy with it. But I'll tell you, God would be more happy if you were preaching where he wanted you to the people he wanted you because God knows something you don't know. God knows where the harvest is. God knows where the harvest is. God knows the hearts that are ready. Now, sometimes we do sow. Sometimes we plant. Sometimes we water. Sometimes we're there when God gives the increase, but God is giving the increase. There is increase happening all around the world right now. And God knows where the seed has been sown. God knows where it's been watered. And God knows where there's a harvest 
ready to take place. But that harvest happens when men call upon the name of the Lord. When people call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved, that's where the redemption, that's where the harvest takes place. And God knows where it's about to happen and wants to put you where it's happening. So they're forbidden to go to Asia. His plan was to go to Asia. It was a good plan. And the Holy Ghost said, nope. Now, it's funny, if, if you talk to my family, the last, the last three months have been crazy fun. <laughs> God told us, told me, resign and go. So he did. And I can't tell you how many times we were sure what that meant and what we're going to do and where we're going to go. And the Lord says, nope. Okay, we'll do that. Nope. Do that. Oh, okay. Mm. Don't outplan the Holy Spirit of God. We're troops. We don't need to outplan. We need to trust the planner that he knows what, and he knows where, and he knows when, and he knows why. Do they, do they eventually get the gospel to Asia? Yeah. Like, have you heard of? Have you heard of like Ephesus? Like the whole book of Revelation is written to the seven churches of Asia. So the gospel did get to Asia. In fact, later on, Paul will stay two years in the school of Tyrannus. And as we read earlier, until all Asia heard the word of the Lord. But at this particular point, at this particular time, he was forbidden to preach in Asia. Just know that sometimes you will plan to go somewhere. And you, you will be sure that that's where God wants you to go. And you will start aiming in that direction. And then the Holy Ghost will say, no. Now, this doesn't work in our, in our, in our Baptist methodology of mission. did not work well. Right? So here comes missionary Joe. And he gives out a prayer card. Joe and family, missionaries to Asia. And so you get a map. You get a flag. And we're supporting Joe to Asia. We're now reaching Asia for Christ through Joe. And then Joe is forbidden by the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia. So then it says, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go into Bithynia. That word essay means they attempted. So Joe, no longer allowed by the Holy Ghost to go into Asia, sends a prayer letter back to your church with a new prayer card. Scratch that one, turn it over. Actually, we realized that we were not called by God to go to Asia. We are now going to Bithynia. And so you're kind of going, mm -hmm. I want to move the flag. We're going to reach Asia. Oh, you say this isn't true? I had a pastor when, when uh, they took us on for support in Fiji. It's what the pastor said to me. He said, Brother Corey, we are supporting you to be a missionary in Fiji. If you change your mission field, we will drop your support. I had a pastor get mad at me because I was leaving Fiji and working in Nauru and Tuvalu and in the Philippines. And I'm like, wait, brother, what are you doing all over the region? I, I can tell you stories you would not believe. I've been publicly rebuked in, a, in an assembly of churches from all around Fiji. An old missionary came in and preached and called me out publicly in front of everybody and said, now, brother Corey, God's called you to Suva, Fiji, to pastor that city Baptist church there. And, you know, one day you're over there in that place, and another day you're over in that place. You need to be in the church. God's called you to be a pastor. So I was kind of doing like this Bible thing, like, 
going around, and I got publicly rebuked for it. Do not change from Asia to Bithynia. You lose your support. But it's okay. You're, you're a gracious church. You're a gracious church. Pastor gets up and says, okay, Joe was going to Asia, right? But actually, the Lord's led him to Bithynia. Church, can we still support him now to Bithynia? And, and you're all going like, does this guy even know how to follow God? I mean, he came to our church and said that the Lord led him to Asia, and now he's going to Bithynia. Does he even know God? Okay, but reluctantly, the church votes, let's keep supporting him to Bithynia. So you move your flag. It says, so we essayed to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they passing by Mysia came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. Then stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel to them. Now we're really sure. Assuredly gathering. So now you get a whole new prayer card because the front and back of that one's all messed up. And he gets you another one, and it says, Joe, missionary to Macedonia, dear church. I realized when I came to your church, I said God had called us to Asia. But when we, we tried to go into Asia, and the, the Lord said no, and so then we, we realized the Lord was leading us into Bithynia. But then we tried to go into Bithynia, and then that didn't work. And then I had a dream the other night, and some men were calling us to go into Macedonia, and now I know for sure God wants us to go into Macedonia. By that point, the guy's got no support from any Baptist church this side of heaven because he's now called a double-minded man, and he's unstable in all his ways. He doesn't know how to walk with God. But in fact, he's walking with God a lot more than the stubborn guy that stays in one city, and God says, shake the dust off your feet. Bless God. God, call me to this city. I'm going to die in this city. You, you understand what I'm saying? Now, why did God want him to skip these areas? Because, by the way, the gospel eventually gets into Galatia, Acts 18.32. It eventually gets into Asia, Acts 19.10. It does get into Mysia. It goes into all these places eventually. Notice this. God has him skip all of Asia, has him skip all of Bithynia. They get to Troas. That's as far west as they can go there at the Aegean Sea. They can't go any further. And then they, he has a dream there to go over into Macedonia. So they get a ship. They go over into Macedonia, skipping Tens of thousands of people. They go to Macedonia. They get into that chief city. There's no synagogue there. What's Paul's pattern when he goes into cities? Go into synagogue for three Sabbaths. No synagogue. That means there probably wasn't a large Jewish population in uh, Philippi. So they go down to a river. I've been to that river. And there was a group of Jewish women sitting down by the river having a prayer meeting and God just happened to lead Paul there. He sits down with those women and says, can we join your prayer meeting? Before that prayer meeting was over, Paul preaches to them. Lydia gets saved. Her household gets saved. A demon-possessed woman gets saved. All the people in the jail get saved. The Philippian jailer gets saved. And a dynamic church is established in Philippi that will be part of taking the gospel throughout all Macedonia. And later on, when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, I do you to wit the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And the churches of Macedonia are still an example that we use in our churches quite often today. And you know what? 
Paul was able to walk past what he thought God wanted him to do a couple of times to obey the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, in, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, you, you know the passage in John 4, verse 35. He says, Say not there yet four months, then comest the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. There was a command given by Jesus to open your eyes and look on the fields. The field is the world, and the harvest is plenteous. It's just not always plenteous at the same place at the same time. The static view of missions does not allow missionaries to do this. Missionaries are told to stay faithful to the field where God has called them, but the biblical evidence, evidence is that the field is the world and that our location in the field is fluid. We can and should be moved to the harvest as the Spirit of God leads us. Now, in that same passage where Jesus talks about looking at the fields in verse 38, he says, I sent you to reap that whereupon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye have entered into their labors. Now, I want you to think about Paul. Whose labors did Paul enter into? You think of all the places that Paul went, and there was a fantastic harvest that took place. Did Paul enter in to other men's labors? What, what did Paul find in almost every one of those cities that he went to? A synagogue was there. Who, what, who's responsible for the synagogue? The Jews. That goes back to Ezra's time. What was being read in the synagogues? Moses was being read. What labor had been done before Paul got there? Had work been done? Was, had the law been there? Is the law a necessary part of the gospel? Yes. We know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Um, Galatians 3 says that the law is a schoolmaster. What does a schoolmaster do? It teaches us. What does the law teach? That no matter how hard I try, I'm still guilty. I'm still undone. And when the schoolmaster has done its job, where does it point you? It points you to Jesus Christ for redemption. So when Paul walked into all those cities, he went into the synagogue and he entered into other men's labors. Moses, David, with the Psalms and the prophets, those men had labored, the scriptures had been there, and a foundation was laid. He could take that foundation and point them to Jesus Christ. No wonder those churches had somewhat of an advantage because at a minimum they had Jews in those churches that had an Old Testament foundation. What a blessing that was. Have you ever read about the day of Pentecost? What happened on the day of Pentecost? Thousands of Jews came from all over the empire. They came down on that day of Pentecost and God allowed, Paul wasn't even saved at this time. But Peter stood and preached, and the 11 and the 120 spoke in the languages of all those people, and they heard the gospel, and then they went back into all those places. They went back maybe wondering how many of those people actually got saved. We don't know, but they heard in their own tongues the wonderful works of God. And then they go back into their cities and go back into their synagogues, and maybe there's whispers of this. Maybe people are sitting around in these places going, I wonder what all that means. Is all of that true? And then some of the Jews sat down with some of their Gentile friends and say, we saw strange things when we were in Jerusalem this time. 
And then several years later, on comes these missionary teams confirming what they had already heard, and they entered into other men's labors. Now listen to me. You have no idea around the world what God has done to prepare for our arrival, wherever we go. We say to ourselves, how do you go into a Muslim country? How do you go into a communist country? How do you get into these places? Like, what tools are we going to use? What methods are we going to use? Look, there's one method you need. That's to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. And you need to be armed with the gospel, the word of God, the truth. That's what you need. You need the spirit of God and the word of God. Huh? That's a big problem for us, Baptists. Because we're too lazy to study the Bible. We struggle to just have a daily devotion, let alone study the scriptures to show ourselves approved unto God. We, we're so afraid of the spirit of God, right? The charismatic word of faith, Pentecostal movement, obviously, has a very incorrect view of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, it, it's fake. It's, it's, a lot of it is demonic. A lot of it has nothing to do. And, and we've seen that excess that is out there. And oftentimes we fear the excess so much that we just walk by all of our logic and by all of our intellect. Now, there are some um, objections. Some people say that being... Um, fluid and mobile means we abandon the hard areas where only a few are being saved over time. And I'll tell you, God doesn't want you to leave the hard areas. I'm talking about being sensitive to the Spirit. The time frame is always up to the Holy Spirit, not up to man. Right? We look at Paul was three months there and six months there and 18 months there and three, years, uh, three and a half years there and six weeks there. Don't make a pattern for yourself. Like, like don't start setting time frames for what you're going to do, just know that God has a time for everything. And your job is to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit of God. If you were Adoniram Judson and he went into Burma, he was there for what, nine years before having the first convert? So can God put you nine years into one place without one convert? And can it be God's will for you to stay there? It absolutely can. But I'll tell you, if you look what was happening for those nine years, those, those, those Buddhists were coming around him almost every day, talking, conversations, translating, writing the scriptures, writing gospel tracts. There was an interest, but there was a reservation. And he stayed, and he stayed, and he stayed. I'm, I'm not saying you can't go anywhere more than three weeks or three months or six months or nine months. I'm saying, what's the pattern? Is it three and a half years? Is it 18 months? Is it nine months? Is it 16 months? Is it three weeks? Is it six weeks? Like, like what's the pattern? The pattern is the Holy Spirit. The pattern is that the Spirit of God knows when to stay and when to go. And so who do I need to be in tune with? I need to be in tune with the Holy Spirit of God. I need to know what he wants me to do. And it may look like I'm staying too long. It might look like I'm not staying long enough. It may look like I'm abandoning a revival to go down to a desert. But, but I don't have to know all the answers. I have to be sensitive to and led by the Holy Spirit of God. We're not abandoning hard areas. 
There's always going to be churches laboring in hard areas. Not everybody moves, by the way, because somebody's got to stay and be a pastor. And guess what pastors don't do? Pastors get to stay in a spot and shepherd the sheep. The pastors have to lead the church into missions and these activities. But God has men that stay. And God has men who stay through fire and storms and good times and bad times and ups and downs. I'm not saying everybody abandons ship all the time, but I'm saying when you get into missions, there is a fluidity that requires a, um, a leadership of the Holy Spirit. I say one other thing here, and then I'll probably end this one. Um, Timothy told us this, and I mentioned this the other night, that no soldier that warreth entangleth himself in the affairs of this life, that he may please him that has called him to be a soldier. I think one of the mindsets that we need to have is that we are a soldier of Jesus Christ. If you are in the military and you are an active duty, any, anybody in here, Ben, military? Can I see your hand? Military? Okay. My brother's back there. If you're an active duty military and you're, you're back on your base, how much notice does the military have to give you that they're deploying you in time of war? How much? I just saw zero going up. Yeah. Are they, do they usually give you like a couple of hours in the worst case? Worst case, a couple hours, sometimes a day. Sometimes you get more notice than that, but they don't have to give you any notice at all. You're at their disposal. So if you're active duty military and you're on base, that constrains you to what kind of contracts you can enter. You can't enter certain contracts with people that would cause you to say, I can't go. I have a contractual agreement. You just, you just don't make them because the military won't care. They'll break that contract. And you can deal with the consequences of that. People are careful what kind of contracts they enter with you because you might be gone tomorrow. So, so a soldier, an active duty soldier, must always live his life in such a way that if he's called into action, he drops and he goes. What do the wife and children know? What, do, what does a military wife know? I, I don't want him to be gone, but I, I realize every single moment of every single day, he could be called away into active duty. And she has to be okay with that, prepared for that, ready for that. Children have to know that dad could be called away or mom, vice versa, whatever the case may be, by whoever's enlisted. What if, what if we lived that way with God? What if we lived in anticipation that God wants to use me? What if I actually said, God, you could use me in any way, in any time, in any shape, in any form that you want, and I am intentionally going to detach myself from everything around me so that if you said go, my answer would be, yes, sir, not I need six months. God may give you six months, by the way. God may come and say to you, next year I'm going to, I want you to get ready for this. God may say, or God may say, tomorrow. I was in, uh, three weeks ago, I was up in um, Open Door Baptist Church of Kent, Washington, um, preaching, and they called the Greater Works Missions Conference. You think I'm crazy? You should meet those guys. I am absolutely tame and in the box compared to the brothers that I was with up in that conference. A local church in Kent, Washington, 
has helped birth over 300 churches in many countries of the world. A local church. Not the missionaries that they support. They do support missionaries. That local church itself, through its own membership in its own body, have birthed around 300 churches over the last 17 years. There was a young lady in that church. Her name is Taylor. And uh, she came to me and she said, I think God wants me to go to Fiji with you guys um, this week. We were leaving in like two days to go to Fiji. And she went and talked to her pastor. They prayed about it. And then she bought her tickets. Boom, boom, boom. Went to Fiji and spent the last two weeks ministering the gospel. And then I'm like, man, now that's what I call living detached. You know the funny thing? Nobody in her church thought she was crazy. That was like the normal behavior and pattern of people in that church. They like live for the gospel around the world. And that pastor told me at least half of the membership of their church has been actively involved in some kind of foreign mission work within their church. They just all go all the time. You see, that's crazy. That's why 300 churches. That church has planted more churches than any missionary that I know that's been on the field for all those years. That's what a local church has done. Man, I was like, you people are insane. How do you even do that? So the Holy Spirit and missions. The Holy Spirit and missions. My kids have asked me a couple times over these last weeks, Dad, what are we doing? It seems like it keeps changing. And I'm like, yep. I'm not about to complain to God about it. I'm not about to point my finger to God and say, uh, God, could you be more consistent with uh, what you're telling me? Like, just tell me one thing and let me do that for the next five years. And the Lord's like, you just be quiet and do what I say. He knows where we need to be, what we need to be doing, when we need to do it. So you understand, as we've been talking about all the mechanics of this, let's go back and review now. We've said that the Great Commission is a mandate. God expects the gospel to be preached to every creature which is under heaven. That is not being done right now in our generation. I am responsible for that. That's my fault that it's that way. And I have personal responsibility to see that that is rectified. I I can't pass that off to somebody else. I can't blame somebody else because I'm somebody else. Whose job is it? I'm as much a human being. I'm much a Christian as anybody else is in this world. So I take personal responsibility for that. The world is the way it is because I've not done my job. And God, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get that job done. And then hopefully you can look around within this body. Oh, to have a church body banded together around this cause where you look around to each other and you all end up saying, you know what? We're all responsible for this. This is all of our fault fault that it's this way. And I want to do whatever it takes to rectify this. Great commissions, a mandate. Missions is a what? An all church strategy. Nobody's left out of this. God has given you a pastor with a vision for this, by the way. I'm, I'm telling you the only reason I can say all the things that I've said this week, the only reason I've had the liberty to say is because God has already prepared your pastor and he's already working his heart in this direction. And I suppose you all know that already like by being here. It's like, well, that's obvious. You, this doesn't happen without leadership within the church. 
God will raise up your pastor and the assistant pastors and the leadership team for this. But it's not enough. He, he can't do that. He can have a vision for that, and God will give him vision, and God will give him leadership, but it's got to be an all-church strategy. And let me just warn this church. I, wanna, I, I, I hate to do it, but I'm going to warn you. If you pick up this vision, you become a massive target for Satan. Because Satan doesn't care about churches who don't have this strategy. Satan is happy for you to have your happy little church. Like, but when you talk about, I'm going, to, I'm going against the gates of hell now, because you know that's what's in the world, the gates of hell. And we go, the first verse in the Bible, I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So when you attack, you attack the gates of hell, and Satan doesn't like it. He blinds the minds of those that believe not, lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ should shine in unto them. And if you're going to shine in unto them, why don't you remember the list that happened to Paul, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him? Satan will work very hard to divide this church. He will turn you against each other. He'll turn you against your pastor. He'll, he'll make envying and division and complaining and all. Anything Satan can do to get you off track with this vision, that's exactly what he'll do. Trust me, I've seen it. I've seen it. It's an all-church strategy. It will take your humility. It's not about you. You're going to have to be humble. It's not about you. You have to get out of the way. You have a role to play, but you don't need to be the star. You don't need to be the center. You don't need to be known. Your opinion doesn't always need to be taken. It's a teamwork. It's an all-church strategy. Humble yourself and say, God, whatever you want, however you want, I'm in. If I'm not necessary for this thing, I'll pray. An all-church strategy. Missions is journeys. It's journeys. It might be a short one. And God may need you on a short. We just did a, we did a 16-day mission trip to Fiji. We've done 18 or 19, 21 days in Zambia. Uh, we've had teams that have gone for two or three months. Brother Jacob Ray, who was here, right? Jacob Ray has been a huge part of what we've been doing over in Zambia. And he's got, by the way, he's got the right mind and the right vision for this. We're on the very, very same page with this. They're going to go move there. Like they're going to go move to Zambia, and that's going to head up that whole region of the world that we want to do uh, gospel work in. So, so God may have some people go, but you ask Jacob, and he'll say, my role is the tip of the spear for the church. I'm not replacing the church. I, I'm, I'm the tip of the spear in this part of the world for our church. That's how God works. So you have different roles to play, different timing. It's an all-church strategy. What is your gifting? What is your ability? Like, what is in your hand? What resources do you have? What knowledge do you have? What skill do you have? Put it all at God's disposal. Missions is journeys. Missions is teams. I already jumped into the team. Missions is teams. We do this together. The, the era of blessing a missionary couple and saying, see you in four years, and we'll send you checks along the way, that's got to come to an end. That's not working. That's putting a massive responsibility on a very few number of people. And, you know, they can't do the journeys because they're by themselves. they got to do too much. Missions is teams. And missions is spirit-led and spirit-empowered. Right? Those are five principles. I'm sure there's more that I haven't seen that I don't know. But I think those five principles right there, if they become the bedrock of a church's philosophy of missions. You know what God can do? He can fine-tune all of that. 
He can give clarity to that. God can begin to, because God will use your church uniquely. As I've been seeing what's happening with other churches and other men, like God has just shown me, Corey, don't put me into a new box of anything. Keep me in this box right here, but just know that I've got a lot of things at my disposal. Let me use you the way I want to use you. Let me use this church the way I want to use this church. And then this church might have a very special gifting and ability and another church has got a different gifting and ability, and another one's got another one, and you know what happens? We all start working together. You know, churches that are printing Bibles, they've got their membership and their manpower just mass-producing Bibles and tracts to get them to the world. Don't blame them that they're not down in, in, in Mexico preaching on the street. Thank God that there are suppliers, like, getting all these resources out to our hands. They don't need to do what this church does. You know, the group that have formed this IMSI, these international aid agencies that are now forming institutions that can get our missionaries into almost any country of the world, let them set those institutions up. Let them work on those aid agencies and say, missionaries, we got doors open for you. Let them do that part. I'm glad I don't have to do that part. God has specialists. God has special forces. God has troops on the ground. I'm telling you, church family, I'm telling you this. I am, I am so persuaded of this that if any church in the world grasps this vision, which is not mine, by the way, I have been dumbfounded the last couple of years as God has graciously opened my eyes because I've been asking God, help me to see God. I want to understand it. And as I've told you, I, I, I owe a debt to a number of men who have seen different components of this over the last three, four, five years that have said, Corey, can I show you something in the Bible? I had a good friend, a one good friend that really taught me um, about why journeys can work. I hadn't seen this preacher for 15 years. He calls me. This is a couple of years ago. He calls me, Brother Corey. I said, Brother Mark, how are you? It's been a long time. He says, what are you doing on Thursday, September Something. And I said, uh, nothing. Why? He says, you want to go to lunch? I'm like, you live in Wisconsin. I'm in Washington. How's that going to work? He said, oh, I'll fly over. You'll, you'll fly over to take me to lunch? And he said, yes. And I said, uh, yes, I am going to have lunch with you on that Thursday. And I said, but you have to stay till Sunday and preach for me as well if you're going to come. They said, okay, I'll do that. But this guy literally wanted to fly around the country to come have a meeting with me. I asked him later, why did you, why did you come? He said, he said, brother, he said, I have been burning in my heart the biblical philosophy of missions. And he said, I can't get anybody to listen. People just kind of shake their head and then it goes nowhere. And I was praying and the Lord said, go talk to Corey Mears. He will listen. So that guy obeyed the prompting of the Holy Spirit. A friend I hadn't seen in years flies across the country to give me another piece of the puzzle. And guess what I was praying for? I was saying, God, what's a piece of the puzzle that I'm missing? Lord, what, what am I not seeing? Help me to see it. Help me to understand it. And God brought me the piece of that puzzle. And you know what's happening this week? Hopefully, what I'm doing is bringing a few more pieces of the puzzle. But I didn't invent any of this. I just, haha, I have the answer key. 
All the answers right there. If this church does not do this, I want to tell you what Mordecai said to Esther. Look, if you don't go into the king and do your part, God will raise up deliverance to the Jews from another quarter. You're not all God has. Uh, Who knows if you came to the kingdom for such a time as this? Think about this church family. This church is 40, 30, 34 years old. This church has been here in this valley for 34 years. What if, what if God has said, all right, your preacher's been preaching on the sufficiency of the church, hasn't he? All year long, that this church, the church, not a Bible college, not a mission board, not an agency, not a movement, the church, God's institution, the church is sufficient. What if what he's telling you is true? And what if this church right here, right now is sufficient for the completion of the Great Commission around the world? You say, this is impossible. This is God. I quote for you again, Ephesians 3.20, I believe. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power, the dunamis that worketh in us. Unto him be glory in the church world without end. Amen. You know where God wants that glory to be? In the church. You know what God wants you to do? He wants this church to do exploits. He wants this church to get out of the comfort zone, out of the normal zone. And God wants to empower you to go to all the world and you guys will go and do exploits and you'll come back here and you'll do exactly what Paul did. He came back to the church and he said, let me tell you how God has opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And everyone in the church goes, you have got to be kidding me. Are you serious? Did that really happen? I know, too good to be true, isn't it? You should go with me on the next one. Now, what I'd like to do tomorrow night, I've told almost no stories because I, I don't want you to be motivated by stories, and I don't want, you to, I don't want to over-exaggerate anything that has been done, but I want, to, I want to share with you tomorrow night examples, stories in our own generation, in our own world, how things have happened, how they are, are happening, because God will move mountains for this church to do what God has called this church to do. Only question is, only one question, are you in or are you out? A month ago, I was up in Canada preaching on a very similar subject, a wonderful church in Canada that's already doing unusual things in the world. And this is what the pastor said. He's got kind of a gruff voice. He leaned on the pulpit and he looked at his church and he said, church family. He said, I've been telling you for some time, God's going to do something with our church. See, any place I've gone with my little message, God's already been working in that pastor, working in that church. It's just, this is a validating witness, but he looked at his church and he said, if you're not with us, get out of our way. I was like, I'm like, 
if you're going to stand in the way of God doing what he wants to do in this church, if you become a hindrance to what God is designing to do in this church, if you become the stumbling block to that, I don't want to be you at the judgment seat of Christ. You go read 1 Corinthians 3, the gold, silver, precious stone, the wood, hay, stubble, that has everything to do with how you build the Lord's church. And you destroy God's church's temple, God will destroy you. These are rare opportunities that God puts before us, and I hope this church will take it. Father, thank you for this evening. May your will be done in this church. In Christ's name I pray.